0: Your support of the Candid Frame over the past 12 years has been invaluable to us. You have not only helped us produce over 400 episodes, but your donations directly helped us to create the Candid Frame app and making it available for free. We are now proud to announce the release of a new way for you to listen to TCF. We have released a new skill that is compatible with Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, Using voice commands, you can listen to the latest episodes, jump forward and back, and if you stop listening partway through an episode, it will remember where you left off. And like the Candid Frame app, it's free for users in the U.S. and Canada. In the coming months, the skill will be available in other countries, and I'll let you know when those become available. You can help and continue to support the work that we do here by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. You not only help us to meet our cost of production, but provide us the means to improve the quality of the show and do so much more. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. This is Next, and this is The Candid Frame. I can't believe that we are already halfway through the year. Plans that I had for things that were once months away are now just around the corner. Sometimes I feel like I'm going 100 miles per hour while strapped atop the hood of a car. But it also means that some things that I've been looking forward to are about to happen, which include my attendance at Street Photo SF in June. This street photography festival, which is celebrating its 3rd year, has been on my radar for a while, and I'm excited that I will finally be attending as well as conducting a workshop there. So I thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to introduce you to Ken Walton, the founder of Street Photo SF. Hey Ken, welcome. Welcome. Uh, good to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Barry Next. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, I've been I've been aware of the festival
0: for the last couple of years, so I'm finally uh, going to be able to come up there, and I'm excited. But for people who are not familiar with it with the festival, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, about its inception and what it's all about?
1: Well, we're going into our third year this year. Um, we've uh, grown quite a bit each year, and this is uh, it's in San Francisco the week. Uh, it's, it's usually the sort of first second week of June, so it's June fourth through tenth. Uh, we have a whole week of Free photo walks, lectures, workshops, slideshows, uh, all sorts of events related to street photography. We bring in workshop teachers and lecturers uh, from around the globe, and uh, visitors as well uh, join us from from all over the planet to come in. So it's it's a good time. We uh, last year we had uh, close to 250 people at our at our last lecture uh, with with Bruce Gilden. So we get uh, a nice turnout. And uh, it's just a a really good way to connect with other street street photographers and, uh, you know, learn, share, uh, party, whatever. How did the whole concept come about? Well, um, I started shooting myself um, back in uh, at the very end of 2014 and I just became obsessed with it. And uh, I was I was doing it all the time and I, I just I wanted to to sort of do something bigger than just taking pictures and sharing them on social media. And uh, I looked at what Miami was doing and I saw at the time that was the only one out there. And I thought San Francisco, you know, and I still think it's a great place to shoot and it's got a a vibrant street photography community, but it's not a very big dot on the map. And I wanted to build the community locally and provide a a forum to kind of show off this place as a, a great place to visit, a great place to shoot and uh, that's what led to it. I went out and visited Miami, and I saw what they were doing, and I, I got some ideas from them, and just put together my own program the next year. Had you ever done anything like this before, in terms of uh, like a conference like this? No, I, I haven't. It was it was all new, and it was a big mystery to me, and I had a friend uh, around that time who who was starting a, a totally unrelated sort of a conference for the first time herself, and she kind of gave me a pep talk and said, no, you definitely can throw this together in six months. So uh that's what i did it was a first timer and it, it does get easier every year <laughs> i would hope so
0: <laughs> yeah well you've you've brought together some amazing talented people you mentioned bruce gilden last year but who are some of the people who have attended in the past and who's going to be attending this year
1: uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna miss some names uh but but first year we had um richard bram vanit vorah um, we had, uh, you know, Don Hudson's been with us both years. Um, TC Lynn came in. We had we had a bunch of people, and I, I, the list goes on and on. Last year it was it was Bruce Gilden, um, Michelle Grosskopf, and, and some other members of Burn My Eye, or excuse me, of uh, Full Frontal Flash, were here. Um, Vineet was back. We had Jesse Marlowe and Aaron Berger from In Public. Um, Jack Simon's been here every year. This year, uh, we've tried to, to really mix it up. We have a whole different set of people coming. We have Jeff Mermelstein coming in from New York City. Really excited about that. Uh, we have uh, two members of Burn My Eye coming in to do a workshop. That's uh, Andy Kochanowski from Detroit and TC Lin coming in from, from Taipei. We've also got a full frontal flash street photography workshop. That's with Michelle Groskop, Johan Yelbo, uh, Connor Berry, uh, Ben Halton, Sky Wang, and Tyler Simpson. A bunch of them are joining together for this workshop. And of course, uh, we're lucky enough to have you coming up for the first time from, from L.A., to teach your two-day weekend workshop as, uh, as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being up there. And it's just, it's amazing the, the, the
0: community that's, that's uh, out there, as you mentioned, because I know that's a real thriving street photography community, but
1: having sort of a, a single place where people get together is going to be amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. It's been so, nice. We have, we have a couple of shows this year actually featuring local collectives of, of street photographers. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that.
0: So, to tell me what what the what the feel is like. I mean, you mentioned that some events are paid, obviously workshops, but you offer some free events as well. Uh, wh- you know, what's the dynamic like for people who attend?
1: Well, so um, we, we've actually tried to keep almost the entire festival free of charge. Uh, the only thing you really have, would have to pay for would be a workshop. You know, the teachers need to get paid, mm-hmm. and then we're going to have portfolio reviews, and there's a, a small fee associated with those. But everything else. Um, you know, top tier lectures and slideshows. We have a, a book lab, which is gonna be a mini one day workshop about making books. We're gonna have a zine fair, um, four or five different gallery openings with, with different shows all around town. This is all free. So, uh, we, we also have uh, free, photo, fr- free um, photo walks every day, led by local volunteers, experienced street photographers will, will take you around all the different neighborhoods. So, it's kind of a buzz, it's sort of a community build. Um, we try to have, you know, beer and wine at the events at night and, uh, people tend to kind of get together and go out afterwards most nights. So there's a bit of a a celebratory, um, kind of a party atmosphere as, as well as, um, some really intense, um, study as well. So how has, how's it changed your relationship with the, you know, with the street photography
0: community as a result of putting these, these, you know, this, this event together for the last three years?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I started it when I was so green, um, so I don't, know, I don't really know how it's changed. I will say, as a result of running this, I've been lucky, really lucky, to meet so many um, interesting people around the world who've come in for it and who've worked with the festival. So uh, I, I feel like it's sort of got me on the inside of several you know, concentric circles uh, of street photography communities around the planet. And I, I feel like I could go just about to any country now And meet up with someone and get a a tour of the local best places to shoot as a result of running the festival so that that's kind of nice I've just gotten to know a lot of people yeah and you're
0: getting people who attend who are not just from San Francisco you know I know a couple of people are coming up from LA but do you have a sense of you know of where people are coming from to attend this
1: yeah I've heard of uh, heard people coming in really from from around the world I mean every year we've had people from Europe and Asia come in and, and Latin America Um, several people from Mexico came in last year, but I would say it's, you know, it's, I mean, we don't have a ton of people from overseas, but I would say, you know, this year we're probably going to have 40 people come in from outside the country. That's just a, a ballpark ballpark guess. And that's from everywhere from, um, Sweden to Taiwan to Brazil, all over the place. So where is the event going to be uh, held? And
0: uh, for people who are, say, coming in out of town, what are some of the logistics that they should consider
1: um, if they want to attend? I would say logistics, book book early, look around, give Airbnb a chance, although that's not always even the best deal in this town. But, um, you know, try to maybe share a place with somebody. Hotels can be expensive here. Um, Flights are actually usually relatively inexpensive to San Francisco. The main event Um, This is the same as last year. It's the Harvey Milk Photo Center, which is a really big community center run by the San Francisco Department of Parks and Recreation. It's a a huge photo center. I think it's one of the largest dark rooms in the United States. They have a big auditorium and a gallery and a classroom, and that's a good hub. But we also have uh, satellite exhibitions at the Leica store and at several other locations around town so uh san francisco is pretty easy to get around if you get up here you can pretty much stay anywhere and not be very far away uh from the festival events but harvey milk photo center is sort of smack dab right in the middle of the city
0: and what are the dates for the uh for the whole event
1: it's june 4th through 10th 2018 okay and uh are there still seats available for some of the workshops that are being held yeah, there are, at this point, there are seats available for all of them, although uh, we are starting to sell more over the last few days, and uh, the Mermelstein workshop is getting close to full, but there is still room in, uh, in all of them, and uh, we, we would be happy to have more students coming in. Great, and where can people go to find out
0: more about uh, the workshop and, and attend, uh, and I mean, the, uh, the event, and maybe sign
1: up for the workshops? We're at streetphoto.org, and that's spelled a lot. It's, it's S-T-R-E-E-T. F-O-T-O, streetphoto.org. And everything's right there on the website. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. All right, great. Thanks so much.
0: Another photographer who resides in Northern California is Mark Silber, who first came to my attention via his YouTube channel. With his series, Advancing Your Digital Photography, he showcased video interviews with photographers such as Chase Jarvis, Thomas Hawk, Bambi Cantrell, and Matthew Jordan-Smith. He's also featured fascinating conversations with descendants of both Ansel Adams and Edward Weston, providing some invaluable insights into these two master photographers. Mark is also an accomplished photographer, and he's just released a wonderful book on composition titled, The Secrets to Amazing Photos, 83 Composition Tools from the Masters. Since expanding my sense of composition has been on the forefront of my mind recently, I thought that this was a wonderful opportunity to share this conversation with you. Well, Mark, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: Thank you. I love being here.
0: I've uh, I've enjoyed the videos that you produced over the years, where you interviewed photographers. I, I thought that they were exceptionally well done, and they were always very insightful. They were a great resource for me, not only in terms of just learning about different photographers' process, but just you know observing your approach and your style to to interviewing is something always piquing my interest. So I got I gotta say I've really enjoyed your seeing you at work.
2: I appreciate that. You know, I've always considered that my role is not to be the kind of the star of the show, but to facilitate the viewer to ask the kinds of questions that I think they want to know about. And, you know, I'm genuinely interested in who these people are and how they work. So it's been a fun gig. I've really enjoyed it
0: you probably like me. You've learned a lot about the photographic process as a result of interviewing these these people. And your latest book is about composition. But before we get into the sort of the contents of the book, I, I wanted to get an understanding in terms of what you think you've learned from these many interviews with the photographers, since so much of your conversations revolved around the not so much the career and the business side of photography, but but about the process of create creating photographs.
2: You know, it's an interesting thing. i I sort of tend to not realize how much I've learned until I start doing these shows. and and all of a sudden, I, I realize I've got this tremendous sort of storehouse of information. But you know, the other part of it is when what you see in the interview is like a you know eight or ten minute version, of a, a conversation that lasted maybe an hour on camera and maybe an hour before. And then by the time I'm done editing it, I've watched it 12 times, you know, to the point where I'm like, I'm so done with this thing. But what happens for me is that those really important points just just resonate. And those are the points, I mean, there's so, it's so hard to cut out Content. You know, if I take a, a, you know, do an interview with some of my favorite photographers, uh, Chris Burkhart, I interviewed him before he became huge on Instagram. And here was, uh, I don't know, 21 year old, 22, something like that. Phenomenal photographer. But it was just loaded with these tips that were just popping right out. And uh, I used many of those in my first book. What I found was fascinating was how generous these photographers were and are at, at sharing their, their, really their secret sauce. And there's no reason they should be guided, guarded about it because you can share all the secret sauce you want. It doesn't mean that somebody else is gonna be able to pick it up and immediately rise to that level. But, um, you know, the reason I started this series to begin with is I was doing, you know, I've been an educator most of my life, and I've been doing seminars and workshops, and I'd quote Ansel Adams in particular at that time, uh, talking about visualization. And I thought, wouldn't it be great, instead of me quoting him, if I could actually find content with him explaining exactly what he means by visualization. And I was fortunate enough to be given this unreleased footage from the family where he did exactly that. And you'll see those on my YouTube site. And then it just kind of went on from there. The next, this was 2009, I interviewed Chase Jarvis and you know, that sort of opened a whole new door, set of doors for me. And then he introduced me to Joe McNally, and he introduced me to David Hobby. And it just sort of sprung from there. So for me, it's just been an amazing experience to have all that information. And that's why now I'm focused primarily on writing books, because I need to take that kind of wealth of information not just from them but my own research and what I've done in terms of where I've taken my photography and understanding photography and put that into a book and that's really what you'll find me doing mostly these days I saw
0: that in uh, the presentation that you did in BNH H photo that you sort of broke down the you know the parts of visualization can you share those with us
2: yeah visualization you know so if you look at the every almost every one of the photographers I interviewed mentioned it in some way or another, the concept of it is is basically before you press the shutter, you have to have an idea of what you want to photograph. And that's that's something that you as the artist conceive of. And if you think about it, any art form really goes that way before. A sculptor is going to you know start chipping away at wood or or bronze or whatever their medium is. they have to know they have to have an idea of where this is going and this is uh, this is really the key point of of fine art photography or or even actually really it goes to any type of photography even sports you have to think in terms of Here's a great one from Chris Burkhardt. You know, he's a sports photographer. He's a surf photographer. And he said, you know, he'll be standing uh, shooting the exact same scene with 40 other guys around him. And the first thing he does is he makes sure he's not standing in the, in the same spot that they all are. And he, so in other words, he visualizes it from a different angle, perspective, height, whatever, to get his unique story told. But the, the steps of visualization are basically learning to first see it in your, your own mind before you press the shutter and then following through, knowing your camera, because it, it's great to visualize something, but if you don't know how to make that camera tell that story, you're gonna miss it. And then we get into all the points of composition, which is what my new book is about. And then processing the image is still, you're still visualizing it. You look at it in Photoshop or Lightroom or in the days when we were all in the darkroom, you know, you, you, you think about it in terms of how do I want this thing to look? Uh, do I want to really up the contrast, for instance, in digital photography, you're, you might say in your mind's eye, you think, you know, I know this is a black and white photograph. So you go through the steps of uh, translating a color image into black and white. Once you've processed it, then, of course, the next stage is getting your work out to the world. And all the way along, and I have a graphic in my book, visualization is the center of this process because all the way along, you're the one who's guiding that process. And that's, that's the beauty of it. And there's ways to strengthen your visualization. One of the best ways is to look at works of the masters Joey L., who is another unbelievably talented photographer who, who got his start at age 16 with the first Twilight film. And he just has, you know, soared continuously since then. But his his genius is that he is a 16-year-old. I think this is pretty remarkable. But he studied the work of, of all sorts of different masters and looked at how they're lighting, how they how they use lighting, how they compose within the frame of their canvas. And he's translated that into his photographs and they're remarkable. Yeah,
0: th- that whole connection between visualization and composition, I think, is absolutely an important one, because I think that for for too many photographers there's a disconnect between the two I think people think of composition and it stops at the rule of thirds and they say okay I see something let me put it in that you know follow that rule and then I don't have to think about it and then they're more than likely get very disappointed at the photograph because they really didn't compose the photograph they just placed the element in a certain area of the frame and then crossed their fingers exactly And, and I think that the visualization. And it's really about a careful way of seeing and owning that that frame, because whether That's right, whether it's a photographer or whether it's a, it's a great painter, the, the most adept at, at their art. Are cognizant of every single millimeter in the frame, not just what they include in the frame, but what they exclude, and especially, it, yeah, and what and how they, you know, space all all those different elements so that they're cleanly defined in the frame. Um, it, I understand it can be kind of difficult for someone who's relatively new to photographer, or even someone who's been shooting for a while to sort of to grasp that. You know how how do you help people to have an understanding of not only the importance of that, but how to effectively do it when they go out and try and make a photograph.
2: Yeah, you know, it's kind of like, I, I use the analogy of learning to cook. And uh, the reason I wrote my new book is because composition is an interesting subject, but, you know, it's one that nobody's really addressed in detail before, which is kind of amazing. Um <clears throat> So there's two schools. There's the Edward Weston school, which is, hey, there's no rules to composition. You just have to kind of develop your style. Okay. That's one side of the pendulum. The other side of the pendulum is a whole set of rules. Okay, you know, we have the rule of thirds and we have leading lines. And you have this sort of idea that if you just follow, like you said, you just follow this, this formula that somehow a great photograph is going to spring out of it. Well, as with most things in life, the answer lies in the middle somewhere. The truth is, there are no rules, that's correct. I mean, the rule of thirds isn't like the law of gravity. If you let go of your camera, it's gonna fall and break. That's that's a law, that's, a, that's gravity at work. If you don't compose with with this quote rule of thirds and you put your subject, you know, smack in the center, which many great photographs and portraits have, just that, does something happen? You know, is the camera going to break or you're going to you're going to get a ticket from the aesthetic police or something? Obviously not. So there are not rules; they're guidelines. And what I what I discovered, because so many people have asked me over the years, Mark, you know, how do I how do I learn to compose better? I, I just think my photos are boring, and I I see these great photographers and they seem to have some knack. How did they develop that? Well, I so that's why I tackled this book. And I came up with 83 different formats from very, very simple to more and more interesting ways of portraying your image. But I think to answer your question, the way you learn composition, the way you learn to visualize is first of all, again, go to museums, study the works of masters, look at it ideally offline, because if we spend too much time on a computer, you're getting a secondhand version of it, mm-hmm. you know. Right, But when you see it, that's why it's so important to see art live and see the thickness of the pain and the reflection of light and all these different subtleties you're never going to get by just looking at a, uh, an image of it. But spend a lot of time doing that and figure out what resonates for you. And I, I have an exercise in my first book. When you look at a piece of art, don't just do this – you know, this is the problem with our modern social media. It's like likes, right? Well, okay, likes. I got so many likes, but that's not a critique. It's it's look look at it and see why do you why are you attracted to this piece of art? How did that artist use light in that in that image? Take Vermeer, for example. What an amazing Artist he was. You know, he had two windows in his studio. He pre- pretty much painted everything in the same room. It had two north facing windows, and he would block off sometimes one of them. And so, only having one window. So the subject was lit from that north facing window. The light would strike, you know, there the, the, I'm thinking of the, the milkmaid, the famous one. Mm-hmm. The light is striking her face. On that side, she's lit. On the other side, it's shadowed. And you just see how he used this one light source to tell this story of, of this milkmaid. And that's something, you know, that's a great way to learn. If you look at sports, what how much time is spent by a great athlete in preparation of, of competition? You know, I don't know what the actual ratio is, but it's something like 20 to one in terms of practice to actual performance. And I think in our modern age, I believe this is a, a big misconception or a big disconnect, as you said, which is you just kind of go out with your camera and bang, 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 and you're going to come back with a with a set of great photographs. Not so much. That isn't really how the, how the great photographers that I know do it and did it. Yes, in later in their career, when it becomes very instinctive, sure, we all shoot like that. But early on, spend some time learning and, and learn from those, uh, those masters that came before us. And by the way, I have to mention this. It's in the preface of my book. There is another disconnect, which is, you know, where did photography come from? It's a relatively new art form. I mean, as as an art form, it really didn't sort of emerge until, I'd say, the 20s and 30s. Uh, so that's a, you know, not even 100 years ago as an art form. But photography grew out of painting and drawing, which have obviously, obviously been around for centuries. And it's really important to, to realize that we're part of an ongoing urge in, in man to tell visual stories that go all the way back to cave paintings. Because it must have been a pretty incredible experience when those first cave artists figured out that they could not just, you know, gesture and say whatever monosyllables they had at that time, but they could draw a picture and show their fellow cave dwellers what it was like to see a, uh, a saber-toothed tiger, you know. And that's what we do with photography. We're trying to convey the story that we saw, and ideally it has emotion in it, it has impact, it has a connection t- from the viewer to what you saw, and you're passing that along as a visual story, just like we we pass along verbal stories. But that's that's really the set of skills that I feel needs to be developed to become a great artist. And for me, I think that one of the things that I try to teach my students is,
0: is slow down enough so that you can see what's, what your background is mm-hmm. and whether oh, or not yeah. it serves or it doesn't serve your subject. I think that's, that's a real good starting point. But what, what are some of the things that you think people have to consider about what's behind their subject in order to lead to making a good composition?
2: Boy, you hit it on the head. So you've got to look at Jeanne Fitzmaurice, who's just a phenomenal documentary photographer said in one of my interviews, you really have to think of your photograph in terms of layers. And, you know, she was the first person I heard speak of layers, not in, in a Photoshop sense, but in terms of life or, you know, actually getting out there and photographing. And she said, look at your photograph in terms of layers. You have a foreground, you have where your subject is, and you have your background. And you want to look at each one of those and make sure they're working together. So the most obvious example of not doing that is you're, you're trying to take a portrait and the background is going to completely overshadow, overwhelm your subject. You know, let's say I'm outside and the background is very brightly lit and my subject is in shade. Well it's just going to, unless I'm trying to make it into a silhouette, it's going to completely overshadow my subject. Or let's say there's a lot of distracting lines. You've got fences behind them and there's spikes coming out of their head. I mean, those are obvious examples or a telephone pole or a garbage can, you know, and, you know, you, we can say, well, I'll deal with that garbage can in Photoshop or Lightroom and get rid of it. Nah, I, I'm really kind of an old school photographer. Why don't, you, why don't you just clean up your background right there? Why don't we compose in the camera? And look at, is that background going to serve the purpose of, of uh, telling that story or is it gonna distract? And this gets into something I mentioned and it's kind of near the end of my book. Uh, my new book, I said, listen, there's two approaches to photography, as there are in life. You can be passive, or you can be active. A passive photographer sort of just pushes the shutter no matter what's going on. And you kind of think, well, you know, it's just the way it looks. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be true to what life dished out to me and just press the shutter. Okay, well, actually, you know, great photographers don't really Approach it that way. Uh, 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 All the skilled photographers I know are active. If you have a subject and the background is poor, move them or, or, or go to a different camera angle, but do something actively to change that. So you look at it, you know, then look at the frame. Bob Holmes who's also in my books and I've done many interviews with him he said you are responsible for everything in that frame and if there isn't if there's something that shouldn't be there then you should do something about it this is probably the biggest secret for a new photographer is many times they they're just willing to include way too much stuff in the frame why does it does it help the photograph? Maybe it's really distracting. You know, if you had, you're trying to take a photograph of your, your kid swinging the bat, let's say at a, a game, and there's a really shiny object down in the right-hand corner. Where's the viewer's eye gonna go? Not to your kid, but to that shiny object. Well, is that your story? Probably not. So crop it, move in a little tighter, you know? Get rid of that shiny object and compose in the camera. Yes, you can deal with those things later and I often do and I'm, hey, I mess up like everybody else and I have to get my, you know, my masking out or whatever if I'm using Lightroom and, you know, I'm using the the healing tool, but try not to do that. Try to try to do all your composing in the camera. I think you're going to be happier with the results.
0: There's a poll called they have in the book. It says, composition is simply the arrangement of your subject matter within the confines of your picture space. And that's by William Paluth. Yeah. and I, And I think that really is a a good way of looking at composition, rather than being a hard and fast rule, it's where you decide to place all those different elements relative to each other in the frame. That's really at the heart of composition. It's, it's, It's what I'm doing all the time. I see all these sort of disparate elements. I decide what's in the frame and what I have to get out. And the stuff that I have in the frame, it's like, I got to figure out their relationship to each other. And and, and it's so much of it's dictated from where do I stand? You know, do I use a wide angle? Do I use a telephoto? Do I use a wide aperture, a small aperture? And all of that is being dictated by the relationship that my visualization is leading me to Uh, leading me to to choose where those things are uh, in in the frame that's Um, right so let's talk a little bit about that because I think that that is really sort of the key that could help a lot of people start to really grasp how they can start composing their their photographs considering the relationship of objects within the frame
2: yeah because you know really it, it there's a lot of complicated definitions of composition, but I like that definition because it's really very simple. And, you know, I I believe that anything well understood becomes a simplicity, not a complexity. So if you strip it down, you've got to frame, you know, your camera. Most of the time it's a rectangle. I have, you know, a Hasselblad and I have a Roloflex, those are square, but Most people are not shooting with those cameras, they're shooting with a rectangle. So you've got a rectangle. And what you put within that rectangle is essentially what composition is all about. Now you can use your your hands to create a frame, which I recommend, you know, without even having your camera. you, You basically make two L's out of your fingers. You know, I put it in my book to show you how to do it. You know, you make two L's and you put them together and you have a rectangle. And, you, you know, a really good exercise is to go around and just use your hands as a framing tool. You can also cut out a piece of cardboard. You know, that's another way of doing it. And cut, a, cut it like a picture frame. Uh, map and then hold that up and go around. Now, why do you want to do that without a camera? Is because as soon as you've got a camera pressed to your face, you're kind of into the next phase of the whole process. And you, you often are getting into the technical side of, like, w- what aperture and where do I want to focus and all this other stuff. But if you strip it back to the essence of, of framing is – uh, how how am I going to put that subject within that rectangular frame? It's really time well spent. I still do that all the time. You'll see me walking around, and you'll see this with with you know film directors too. You know, you take your fingers and you make that rectangular frame, and you want to kind of visualize how's it going to look within there, um, and and that. You know, I've got 83 composition tools, but they're all essentially variations of of that, of of framing. Just like you could say, you know, you go into a kitchen, what's the most commonly used tool in that kitchen? It's a knife. But, you know, how many different ways do you use a knife within within the course of cooking a meal? You know, you're using it in so many different ways and even different types of knives and, you know, to end up with this meal that looks really great. So that's another kind of analogy that I give in terms of composition. Learn to like read a recipe, which is what I'm giving you here. I'm giving you 83 different recipes that you can you don't even have to read them consecutively you can flip through the book until you find one that sort of sparks for you and you go oh that's cool diagonal lines yeah I like that you know and then do it shoot it and see how it looks I think one of the
0: things that's really kind of important not to lose sight of is that so much of photography at least for me is spurred by a moment of discovery Mm -hmm. walking down the street I see something it it, I, my heart just skips a beat. I mm-hmm. sense its potential for a photograph. And what I'm trying to do using the camera, using what I understand of composition and light and shadow and all those things, is to c- recreate that moment of discovery in the photograph for the viewer who totally. doesn't have the benefit of, of being there. And I was looking at the work of Stephen Shore and W. Eugene Richards the other day. Mm -hmm. Um, Very different photographers, very different subject matter. But when I took a look at those photographs, I felt those moments of discovery. Even, Even with some of the photographs that I'd seen years before that I was familiar with, I was sitting there with their books in my lap, going through them and taking them in and experiencing them. And I think that that's really part of the missing piece for a lot of the photographs that I see students create is that there is no moment of discovery in those photographs. And I think that, that there needs to be a sort of a connection between that moment of revelation and the choices that you make subsequently when you make the photograph. Totally. Um, So, you know, how do you find what, 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 do you find effective to be able to sort of that bridge that gap in your own work when you see something and then you have to all, then you have to jump all the hurdles and all the hoops to get a photograph that reflects how you felt at that moment?
2: Yeah, that's really the key to the whole thing. Well, it, it comes down to being prepared, I believe, you know, and and one thing I should just mention here, just so that I'm not giving the impression that, uh, visualization is this kind of long cerebral process you know that you're sitting there thinking for minutes on end and then you finally press the shutter visualization can occur in this in the fraction of a second also take the work of Henry Cartier Bresson who was you know capturing the moment so how did he know for instance you know there's this Fantastic. There's so many photographs that I love of his, but there's one where this guy is jumping over a mud puddle, or yeah, it's a mud puddle, basically, puddle in the ground. And how did he know to press the shutter at that exact moment when he catched that guy mid-air? So he had to visualize that. But that visualization occurred might have occurred a moment like a minute before, he says, look, I see this guy kind of coming up to this puddle, and I think he might take a leap over it. If I stand here, and I press the shutter, he had to anticipate where that guy would be over the puddle and press the shutter a moment before that, that's split second visualization. But you know, you hit on something, I think it's it's being receptive. How do you find those moments that really connect that where there's such an impact of light or uh, motion or whatever it is that, that really draws your eye in. That comes from being prepared, knowing your tools so well that you don't have to think about them knowing your composition tools, your camera, all these different tools, and that all comes from practice. So, you know, there's the Louis Pasteur quote, chance favors the prepared mind. Ansel Adams changed it to chance favors the prepared photographer. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Some of Ansel's most famous work were not, were shot on the spur of the moment. You know, I have a story of, uh, of the uh, uh, moon in New Mexico, uh, the moon over the graveyard in New Mexico. He's driving along in his uh, his Cadillac station wagon, sees the moon, sets up his camera, and he can't find his exposure meter. He's got this eight by 10 camera and he can't find his exposure meter. Well, he did the math in his head and he figured it out and he captured it. It was a little thin. The negative was actually kind of thin. Uh, and he went back to his dark room and, and corrected it. But he said he had just enough time to capture that one image and then he pulled the plate out, turned it around and the, the moon was, you know, the it was gone. So that's how you have to approach photography. You may not have a second chance and learn to see. I call it getting in the zone. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something that clicks in for me when I start to see photographs because, you know, you can be going through life. Let's say you're a tourist and you're in Paris and you're with friends and you're walking around and, you know, you're you're distracted. You're thinking about a lot of other things, and you're walking by one great photograph after another, maybe. And and on the other hand, you might go out by yourself, totally with the mission of saying, "Okay, I want to come back with at least one outstanding photograph." You're you you get into the zone, and you look and you connect. And when you connect, then you can make your camera connect and then you can make your viewer connect with that moment
0: yeah one of the things that i tell my students all the time is is you have to stop seeing literally mm. and start seeing graphically mm-hmm. because you if you whatever drew you into that scene that's all well and good but at that point you have to take that step back and you have to start looking at it in terms of line and shape and light and color. Mm-hmm. In the book, you have several examples where where you're describing, looking at a scene graphically. And you're, and you're describing all the different sort of lines and shapes that the different photographs that illustrate those chapters sort of um, mm-hmm. create within the context of the frame. Um, Talk about why that's so important to be able to recognize those variances in terms of line and shape towards building a successful composition.
2: Yeah, well, again, I, I, I believe that composition is a geometric function. I mean, we're starting with a rectangle. And then what are we photographing but various different lines and forms? So... Take. I'm looking at an example in the book of using diagonal lines. So each of these are again. If you think of it in terms of cooking, you know you have you have spices and different elements that you can add to your your dish to bring out the flavors. So we're trying to build a vocabulary um, as artists so that we can speak fluently to the viewer. To what we saw so a diagonal line is really interesting it's a line like any other line but because it's on a diagonal it brings about the feeling of vitality and dynamic motion so if you're trying to show um something that happened with motion in it some people are walking let's say or i have a picture of a car that i uh on page 43 um on a freeway overpass and another on the page next to it is some penguins in South Africa walking. I'm trying to show that they're in motion, not static. And even though we've got a two-dimensional still image, you can do things to either emphasize the motion or make it look very stable and static, depending on like a flat line, horizontal line will bring about the feeling of something being static. So if you know these different, what you're doing with these lines, then you can start playing with them and putting them together to tell the kinds of stories that you want. Symmetry is another geometric function and symmetry is very powerful. I don't know, I can't tell you why does our eye seem to love symmetry? I don't know. It's some sort of aesthetic thing that we find pleasing. And when you use it in a photograph, you're you're going with, you know, some sort of basic human quality where we we like that kind of order, and when we see it, it looks aesthetic to us. And uh, circles are also very appealing frames, like, you know, when we use a frame, we have somebody stand in a door frame or a window frame, and their face is framed by the window, for instance. That, what that does is it, it just emphasizes, this is where I want your eye to go. I want you to look at my subject right here. And that brings up a really powerful concept. Uh, right at the end of the book, I'd already written this chapter, but at the end of the book, um, I went over and had a visit with Kim Weston, Edward Weston's grandson. Edward Weston is, it, to any viewers who haven't studied his work, please take some time to, to look at what he did. And I have a couple of videos discussing this. But what was remarkable about Edward Weston is he took everyday objects and I'll tell you what I mean in a minute by every day. But he took everyday objects and drew the beauty out in them. So everyday objects. Peppers, his famous pepper number 30. Mm-hmm. Six-hour exposure. And you look at this and you, you think, I look at peppers in the grocery store all the time. I have them in my kitchen and I cut them up. Have I ever taken a photograph of a pepper? Never. Would I? Probably not. But somehow he, he pierced that veil of w- whatever could stand between us and his sense of aesthetics, and thought, you know, if I capture this pepper just like this, it's gonna be really beautiful. And he did. He has another photograph, 1927, of a toilet in Mexico. Who would think that would be beautiful? Mm-hmm but it is, you know, the one I'm talking about, yeah. it's gorgeous. You know, you think a toilet is gorgeous, you know, but he was able to have that view of, again, these are lines, these are beautiful curved lines that, that he captured in a two dimensional sense, but it, it makes you stop and think about life in terms of, well, maybe I should, to me, this is a huge message of art, is maybe I should stop and just look at life a little bit more from that viewpoint as well, because it's more interesting when I do.
0: Yeah. 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 Cause I've been looking at the work of, I said, Stephen Shore, but I've also been looking at uh, William Eggleston, Saul mm-hmm. Leiter, uh, all of whom photographed scenes in their world that at the time were completely ordinary, absolutely mundane that most people then and now would never consider for a photograph. But because they were looking at it with an artist's eye, they took those elements and were able to use these principles of composition about inclusion and exclusion to create images that are just like jaw dropping. Totally. And I think that that is part of the leap that photographers need to learn to make is not passing judgment on what they're looking at and rather see it differently and then that leads to all these choices that we're talking about in terms of how you compose a photograph because if you if you already make the judgment that something that you're looking at is not worthy of a photograph you're excluding excluding a lot of possibilities
2: yeah because there are exact. photographs
0: everywhere these photographers exemplify the fact that that is that is so true um, but talk to me about your own struggles, because I, 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 I think every photographer has them. Sure. You know, about getting past that that idea, oh, it's ordinary, oh, it's mundane, oh, it's not interesting, and moving past that and, and discovering the beauty that is there.
2: You know, that's, boy, that almost comes to a philosophical point, you know, in terms of giving, I think, first of all, it's just giving yourself the time to just be a photographer. I, I'm hmm. Probably the biggest problem that I have and my biggest struggle is I get so busy with so many other things that I just, I will drop out of photographing for weeks on end sometimes. And then I'll think, dude, when was the last time you took a photograph? <laughs> you know, so. I'll make myself go out. I don't care if it's with an iPhone and and go out and photograph. I don't want to lose touch of this this, you know, magical art form. But I think it's just like make that time and take just like in composition, a lot of times it's most of the time I should say it's removing things. Remove distractions, you know, that that get in the way of your photography and and make sure you're you're just constantly developing it because I know just from my own photography that when I put myself in that place where I'm really focused and I'm really you know I want to come back with some images that that are meaningful to me and they're meaningful to me generally speaking they're meaningful to other people then if I make that sort of a priority, then I'm going to make it happen. But you've got to, you just got to keep putting yourself in that, in that situation.
0: You know, one of the things I think that um, the way I taught myself to start thinking compositionally was, by process of elimination, I was sort of eliminating things. Mm-hmm. Trying to make things simpler and simpler to the sometimes to the point of abstraction. But that taught me about the relationships between objects. But it came to a point where I was I found myself making the same photographs over and over again. So I yes, oh, I had, you I yeah. had mastered that ability to simplify and, and and create relations relations between the various objects. But then it's just like, man, I'm just repeating myself. And then yeah. then the challenge is how much more can I add to the scene and still succeed before it falls apart All right interesting so interesting. St- talk about how you can use the principles to be able to make much more complex images like this you 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 manage manage uh, you mentioned at the end earlier about building in layers and i think that that, Mm -hmm. that's part and parcel of that of that process of making more complex images yeah you can build in layers but you still have to be conscious of the spatial relationships between objects and the lines and the shapes and all those things that we've been
2: talking about all those things working together well you know i i I kind of like the idea, you know, Joe McNally talks about the language of light, and I think it's a great way to approach light. And I think of composition as a vocabulary. You have, if you have a limited vocabulary, you're going to end up taking the same photograph over and over again. Yeah. How many... I, you know, I get to the point where I live in a very beautiful place. I live right by the ocean. There's sunsets that take your breath away all the time. And I find myself just thinking, Mark, how many more beautiful sunsets can you capture? Are they that different? Probably not. But maybe if I put a person in there, then it becomes a different situation. So I think it's just, you know, First of all, expanding your vocabulary is really important. Uh, you know, as an analogy, I'm watching the new biography of Bob Dylan uh, by Martin Scorsese and it was really interesting to see how he developed his voice. he He basically emulated like these great folk artists actually. I didn't know this, but even before he got into folk, he was more into rock. And then he got into folk and he emulated, you know, the, the Woody Guthrie. And he eventually developed his own style that became uniquely Bob Dylan. But if you even listen to it, you'll hear these different elements in there. So I think it's, again, he broadened his vocabulary in terms of music. It's really important to have a wide range of choices that you can make in terms of, like you're saying, can it be more complicated? Sure. Uh, but you still have to think about it in terms of what message am I trying to convey? What's what's ultimately the story I'm telling here? Mm-hmm. And if it's complicated and it helps you, you know, that helps the story, fine. If it doesn't, then there's no point in it. You know, it's just, you're just being overly complex. But this brings up, and, you know, the second part of the book, I get into uh, mood lines and uh, we can talk about that now or later, but the, I find those really interesting tools that can help you with your story. Yeah, do you do yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Mood lines were, it, you know, they're interesting because they were developed by not a photographer, but a landscape architect named John Ornsby Simmons, very famous landscape architect who wrote a book called Landscape Architecture. And what he found was that certain lines create certain moods or emotions. He he actually did a scientific study by, you know, he was doing outdoor architecture and he could see if the lines of the area that he was describing uh were a certain way then people felt they felt a certain emotion from them so i'll give you some examples and so these have been translated from landscape architecture into design and photography but um i don't think anybody's done what i did where i actually took each one of the lines he describes and showed a visual example of it so Okay, so for instance, if you want a very passive feeling, you want a kind of a serene, um, passive feeling, go with a flat horizontal line. Okay, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of think, well, that sure, that makes sense, Mark. But what if you want a really unstable feeling? You know, the other thing about telling a visual story is don't get stuck in one emotion you know, life has a whole range of different emotions. So if you can, if you can tell that story in a number of different ways, like, for instance, look at Annie Leibovitz's portraiture, you'll seldom see anybody smiling in one of her portraits. And, you know, if you think about it, a photograph of a person with a phony smile isn't really that captivating, Mm -hmm. right? So she tends to try to get them to take on a certain mood and um, you know, she creates the environment where they're going to feel that mood, but she doesn't really want them to have that happy smile. She wants them to come across as they are when nobody's looking at them. I think that's kind of her approach. So again, by, by knowing these different mood lines, it will help you tell that story. If you want it to be dark and moody, then you should you should use a a, line, a set of lines that will help you bring about that feeling. If you want it to be, uh, I have a <laughs> amazing uh, the self portrait of Vincent Van Gogh. One of the One of the mood lines is a very jittery line. Like if you took a pencil and you drew it like your hand was shaking and you tried to draw a straight line, but it was all jittery. That's what his self-portrait looks like. It looks like he was incredibly jittery throughout the whole thing. And of course, everything we knew, we know about Van Gogh is that's exactly how he was. Very uncertain. And the mood line is termed tenuous, uncertain, wavering which from at least the biographies I've seen of him, that's exactly how he felt about himself mm. since he never even sold one photograph of his own. I think Theo, his brother, is the one that bought one of his, uh, one of his paintings rather than photographs. And here's one of the greatest artists of our time, but he was very uncertain. So again, knowing the, the vocabulary, you can speak photography more fluently. And I think that becomes really important and a lot more fun. How has your teaching and, and especially
0: the writing of this book helped you in terms of how you see?
2: Wow. You know, I had a kind of a, a spiritual experience going through this book. And and OK, I had to find a, an example of each one of these uh the compositional elements. And some of them I didn't. I had examples of every one of them, but some of them I just didn't like, so I didn't put them in the book. I'm not going to put a photograph there for other people to see if I don't like it myself, obviously. But I found that I had virtually an example of every single one of these without knowing it. And it, what it did for me was it helped me identify my process at the time, kind of reverse engineering almost. Okay, so I took the photograph, not thinking about how, what way I was composing it or whatever. I was just trying to get a a photograph that I thought was really good and interesting. But I didn't know the thought process behind it. So here I am later, years later in many cases, discovering how I, why that photograph looks good. Why does it work? And that, that was really cool. And so it's helped me a lot, you know, doing all these interviews, writing in particular, because you have to really make sure when you're writing that it's accurate and that it, it comes across in, a, in an understandable way. So that, you know, it's weird how <laughs> Aperture, you know, it took me a day to write one page about the the definition of aperture and f-stops and then I thought well how did why do we call it an f-stop why not an f number what where did this word stop come into the picture and you know I finally found it in a in a in the focal encyclopedia I didn't know this before but the reason it's called a stop is lenses used to have a slot in them and you would insert a A metal, uh, and you can still buy these uh, at B&H, they actually make these lenses, but you'd insert a metal slot with an opening of different sizes, which are your aperture openings, and those are called stops. Those slots, those things that you slide in are called stops. So that's how it became an F-stop. Well, that's kind of a point of trivia. and a, Does that really change your photography much? Probably not, but it was still kind of fascinating. But, it, you know, it, the process of writing and uh, really making sure that, that everything in there is accurate caused me to clarify in my own mind many things, and I found that very useful.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
2: Um, I, I'll probably go with Bob Holmes uh, because I think he's his work is phenomenal. Uh, he's a travel photographer. He goes out and captures photographs that I'm envious of, and those are the photographers. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, oh, I'm so jealous that you got that photograph, Bob. Why wasn't it me? Um, but the other reason I recommend Bob Holmes is because he's very articulate about his process, and he's very kind about how he explains things, which is why I've done so many interviews with him. But his work is outstanding and his ability to convey to you as a person who wasn't there how he captured it is tremendous so that's going to be my recommendation
0: mark thank you so much for joining us today i really enjoyed uh, having a chance to chew the chew the cut with you in terms of composition was just something that's been on on my mind a lot recently so thank you
2: you bet. my pleasure and, and uh, I hope I hope I'm able to shed light on the subject and improve that vocabulary.
0: Thanks to Mark for making time for us. To find out more about Mark and his work, visit silverstudios.tv. And when you purchase his book, please use our Amazon affiliate link as we receive a little off of each purchase to help support the show. Also, I'll be teaching a series of workshops where I teach my personal approach to street photography. I'll be in San Francisco in June at Street Photo SF and New Orleans in October. I've also just announced two more workshops, including one in New York City in October and one in Paris in September. You'll find links for all of these in the show notes and the CANDOR Frame website. Sign up today and I look forward to meeting some of you in person. And you can also show your support of the show by writing a review in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to listen to us for the very first time and that can make all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us to not only meet the cost of production for the show, but allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Canter Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Sheila Bodine for her recent contribution. It means a lot to receive your support. Thank you. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.